Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Figuru. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 5, Monster Movie. Let's get this show on the road. What did you think? I love this episode. Like I've said, it's one of the few that really stuck with me from my mm-hmm. initial watch through because it was so special. Yeah. I genuinely think the person I was dating at the time who got me watching Supernatural initially, and like that was a point where I was already kind of like not watching every episode with them, and I missed this one, and then she found it was playing in the next night. She's like, no, you have to come watch this one because... She knew how much I enjoyed like classic film and monster movies yeah. and like had a passion for that kind of stuff. So I think it sticks out more because it's an episode I went out of my way to watch, even had I, I missed the original air date. Mm-hmm. Oh, delicious episode. It is delicious. And I think it's delicious because it's made with so much love and love. It, like it really feels like a celebration of the classic monster movie genre. Yeah. And it's made with so much love for that genre that like you can't not be charmed by it. Well, you know what I would love? What would you love? To recap this episode for you. All right, I'll count you down then. Allons-y. Three, two, one, go. We open on the boys, the classic on the road. Of course, this episode's in black and white. Thematically for the whole episode, it's not really referenced, but it's super cool. We are facing a... What seems to be a Dracula, which I love the use of the term a Dracula. But then it turns out it might be a werewolf, the first werewolf that's actually werewolf-like in the entire show. I was super happy. And then, of course, a mummy. And then we find out that clearly this isn't a mummy or a vampire or a Dracula or a werewolf. It's a shapeshifter. And Sam's like, I'll take care of it. Dean, you hit on the hot chick. And then Dean ends up being captured, put into Lederhosen. Sam ends up coming to the rescue. They do stop the shapeshifter and get a nice little lesson by the end of it. But it's just kind of a nice, hearty, wholesome 100th episode. Time. It is very wholesome, isn't it? We'll talk about it later, but like, I feel like as much as this episode, I feel like some people could write it off as filler. It does something very important. It's a little celebration of what they are and of the genre that they're in and And also like an homage to like the roots of that particular genre. And I also feel even from a story standpoint, it kind of just sort of puts the two of them back at kind of a status quo we haven't had in quite a while. That's very true. You know, we're used to seeing the brothers deal with insane things while having to deal with so many things interpersonally that though that's all on the table, it's not just brushed away. It's just on pause for today. We have a simple case. It's going to be easy, they said, as the narrator nodded his head no behind the scenes. But suffice to say, let's head into the long game. What do we have special to learn from this episode? There's a few things in this episode that I'd like to highlight. That starts at the very beginning when Dean says, we can't save the world, not today. Which is actually kind of funny because eventually both Sam and Dean are going to refer to themselves as the guys who saved the world. Very video gamey, but I like it. I think it's hilarious, especially watching it now. For the second point, I'm going to be taking us directly to Dean's monologue to Jamie. He says, I realize that I help people. Not just help them, though. I save them. I guess it's awesome. It's kind of like a gift, like a mission, kind of like a mission from God. 
And we already know that this is true because the angels have saved him from hell. Castiel, Castiel saved him from hell. But we'll really come to realize just how true this is in upcoming seasons and even episodes. That line definitely stood out to me. I will reserve it for later in story time, but this line does contain um, something I really want to focus on. But suffice it to say, the line, I think, for the entire episode stood out the most because it's the one line that felt the most world building in an episode that otherwise, I said it before, feels like a filler episode. Like I feel like if you skipped this episode, you wouldn't be missing any major plot points for the season. But that line, I feel, is so important. There's so much to unpack in that line. I absolutely agree. Oh, we will do some unpacking later. Now, we also have another instance of Dean being drugged and recognizing it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm okay with that. For this next one, I'm going to be taking some deep breaths because near the end, Dean says to the shapeshifter, do you realize what happens at the end of every monster movie? And the shapeshifter replies, ah, but this movie is mine and in it, the monster wins. And I'm trying to stay composed. I I swear, I I swear I am, but it's really hard. (laughs) And if you have season 15 dog whistle, now's the time to like insert it. The way you started this sentence, I'm like, "Mm -hmm." there's going to be one of those moments of this episode that calls forward to the end of the series and you're not happy. Another one that upsets me and that I don't want to dwell on. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this next one and the last one is... An interesting observation that I don't quite know what to make of, but this is the third nameless shapeshifter that we meet in this series. You know, that I think speaks a lot to the characterization of a shapeshifter. It almost feels like there is no intention behind them except to be a metaphor. So the name falls to the wayside. Like so far, every time we've seen a shapeshifter, They've really act almost as like a MacGuffin. They've been there to advance the plot, to tell a story, to be a piece of a puzzle, but never to be a character on their own. The first shapeshifter really felt like he had something in him. I say him, her, it. We don't know its gender. Not fair to me to assume. But in all seriousness, it felt like a character. And since then, they have felt less like a character. And here we kind of get a middle ground. where, like, yes, they definitely have a character, but even themselves not having their own identity or name really says a lot about what the shapeshifter is, both from a story perspective and how the writers use them. I guess that raises the question, do we eventually get a named shapeshifter later? I know we get more shapeshifters. I'm really excited for us to get to that one because it'll contrast so much with all of the other shapeshifters that we've ever seen. I am excited for that. Me too. But for now, let's just hop into story time and talk about The Boys' Crossroads this week. This week, our theme is masquerade. So before we dive into the crossroads, what comes up for you when we say the word masquerade? The, you know, nerdy musical Broadway fan in me immediately goes to Phantom of the Opera, which does make a, you know, pop up a reference in this uh, episode, uh, quite humorous in my opinion. But I think of the masquerade scene and the song that accompanies it, which is very clearly a song about hiding who you are and being your true selves because no one knows who you are, which seems incredibly thematic to the term masquerade. If we dive a little into the etymology of the word, masquerade actually comes from the French mascarade, which comes from the Italian mascaretta, which is derived from mascara, which means mask. 
Now, in the late 16th century, masquerade literally referred to people getting together and wearing masks for a ball or a party, so kind of like what you described in Phantom of the Opera. Uh, and that's, I think, what a lot of people are very familiar with, or like the first thing that sort of like comes to your mind when you think of masquerade. But then later in the 17th century, it sort of took on like a more general meaning of, you know, pretending to be someone or something that you're not. Like you said, I feel like this theme really works for this episode on so many levels. Are you ready to peel the onion with me? I'm trying to make a Shrek joke here, but I can't, but uh, let's do it. (laughs) Shall we start with Sam? Yep, let's get started with Sam. For me, the episode felt at times like filler. I've said this before, it was fun, it felt fillery. But looking at it now, it's easy to see that it was also a mask for how much was lurking below the surface. This is the first hunt the brothers have undertaken since Dean's resurrection that has felt, dare I say, light. You know, it really wasn't like a heavy duty, scary one. Like they even played off as a joke a few times. You know, they even seem to be taking it easy. And this is Sam's mask for the episode. He chooses to just take it easy. No stress. He gives Dean room to breathe. You know, there's little to no arguing. They're completely on good terms. They're being good brothers. You know, Sam just lets Dean off the hook. He is literally going to go hunt a shapeshifter, a thing that has given them incredible trouble twice now that we've seen. And he's just like, yeah, no, get a drink with a hot chick. I'll go take care of myself. What's what's the worst that can happen? We've seen the worst that can happen. And you're just like, cool. He's literally just appeasing his brother. He's like, I'm in his good graces. He's happy for a minute. I'm just going to shut up and ride this wave. That was actually a bit shocking that they're not arguing at all because we've seen so much arguing so far this season, but also even near the end of season three that like now it's, it's kind of like, Oh, they didn't argue a single time. Like, what is this? What's, what's hiding beneath the surface of this? Like even last episode, there was this like kind of like Dean making fun of Samness where he was like slyly making comments like that were kind of like little tiny jabs at him of like, oh, yeah, no, my brother would never lie to me about something like that. We're honest with each other. We don't keep secrets from each other, like just sort of driving the nail deeper into the coffin at Sam's expense. And then here, nothing. That's true. Even Dean is on a really good behavior when it comes to Sam. This is why it feels so out of place. But I really decided to look at this as, no, they're both just playing nice. They're putting on the, you know, best brother mask and just being best friends and just taking it's Oktoberfest. There's gorgeous people everywhere. There is a really simple case of a vampire that's super easy to deal with. We don't want to do this like backwards and forward. Let's just have like a fun Oktoberfest weekend where we happen to take out a vampire. That's really where Sam's choice is. That choice is all in the unsaid to me. That's the mask that Sam is putting on, like the whole demonless Sam mask, because he's trying to pretend like there's nothing going on underneath the surface and he's fine and he's not thinking about exercising demons with his mind. (laughs) Like when you think about it, was there like, did he communicate with Ruby that he wasn't going to be doing this anymore? Like, was there a breakup? Like, what happened exactly with that, right? Like, those are thoughts that I'm having as I was watching the episode. Maybe, obviously, I think it has something to do with the fact that I know where the season is heading. But, like, I can't imagine that all of this isn't on Sam's mind every minute of the episode. You can hear that in the beginning, actually, where he says, the world is coming to an end. Things are a little complicated. Yeah, which I think is such an important moment, too, because 
it just reminds us that this episode, while so light and flaky, like a little croissant, is still part of this greater story we've been seeing this season in this series. Yes, we're getting kind of this moment of levity in the middle of everything, but we're reminded right at the beginning, oh yeah, there's still like the end of the world right behind us. We're just going to not look for a minute. Like you said, it's kind of part of the whole mask thing right now. Like we're just not thinking about that. We're just going to have fun at the ball. I mean, Oktoberfest is basically their ball, right? Like that's that's what they're using it as, it feels anyway. I could not think of another event, cultural, holiday, or anything along those lines that would better suit these brothers for just a fun weekend. Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Especially Dean. What are the three things Dean likes? Beer, food, and hot people. <laughs> and what does he get within like 30 seconds of entering Oktoberfest? <laughs> <laughs> Beer, food, and hot people. <laughs> yep. Well, speaking of Dean, the first thing that comes to my mind when it comes to Dean is how focused he is on having sex in this episode. Yep. <laughs> like one track mind. Like he has decided that he was going to have sex and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting how focused he is on it. <laughs> yeah, even I noticed it was a little bit like excessive and almost like a little like I I think it's just before creepy and maybe I'm reading it wrong because of the male gaze, but the fact that he kind of like picks Jamie the waitress and then, oh, sorry, bar wench, if we're using the proper terms here. Uh, it is Oktoberfest. But he almost like sets himself up the challenge of like, oh, she's not playing, you know, easy. She's playing hard to get. She's actually making me try a little bit. That's why I want to sleep with this week, not just any bimbo. All right. So now that you've said that, let's dive into my thoughts about this. <laughs> because the moment he meets Jamie, like he's obsessed and so, again, if we're looking at him, like, as wearing a mask in this episode, then maybe the mask that he's wearing is the appearance of being a womanizer. Because he really, he could have shown interest in her without making such a show of it. And that's really where the masquerade comes in for me. He talks such a big game. And for what? I mean, he's an attractive guy. He's funny. He's smart. You know, he presents himself as having a successful job. Why does he act this way when it comes, particularly when it comes to women? And especially when it turns out that what most gets Jamie into him is when he's talking about who he is and what he's been through. And that's actually when the masks falls off. Almost, you know, reminding us that being true to yourself is better than putting on this persona for other people. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but... That is, I think, the very important point here is you're right. It's he puts on this. I feel like it's a mask we've seen him put on before, especially when his masculinity is called into question. And I think Oktoberfest, unfortunately, does kind of bestow that manly nature on men at an event like that. I mean, like he there's the moment where he does refer to her as a wench. Sam calls him out on it, and then he actually yells to her as a wench to come bring the beer and her reaction is just, that's part of the gig, I'll, I'll play along. And, you know, I've been to restaurants where they do that, where they encourage you to call for your drink wench to refill your drinks. And it's just like, I have never been more stressed in my life to get a beer. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going back there in a few weeks for a bachelor party, and I'm so afraid. But it's the best food in Montreal. We'll talk later about it. You know, he is really playing up the manly chauvinistic side and wearing it. 
I feel like he's trying to prove something and he's trying to prove that he can still be who he was before all this started, who he was before he started, you know, opening up and having feelings. So if we're talking about his performative masculinity, there's one thing that I can't move past and that I need us to kind of like dig into because I've never really seen it discussed and I can't can't get it out of my mind. So he talks about being rehymenated. Oh God, yeah, he does. People who are assigned male at birth do not have hymens. A hymen is a thin membrane at the opening of a vagina. Historically, that's where the concept of virginity comes from. You know, if a woman had her hymen intact, she was still a virgin. Now, I'm not going to go into the politics and the mechanisms of that because it's all bullshit. If we take it at face value, then Dean was assigned female at birth. So the trans Dean reading gets one more piece of textual evidence in season four. It stood out to me as such a weird train of thought or like line of dialogue in the episode like I can almost understand what they were trying to do in that this was him like having to relose his virginity but I feel like there's a million ways you could have written that discussed it without the to to use his terminology the rehymenization theory which really only makes sense or only stands to be like another piece of like information that leads to the possibility that this is actually a trans reading of Dean. I understand that a lot of people are going to listen to this and be like, oh, he was just making a joke. And I I get that. I get that. But like you said, there were so many other ways of saying this. And yet they stayed on this for a good 30 seconds talking about it. Sam's reaction is just like, again, why are you like this? Like, why must you be like this? I just find it interesting that the goal here was probably just to make a joke, but at the end of the day, they just made it more gay. Gayer and better. Gayer and better. I think that was a stellar breakdown of Dean. I don't think I have too much more to add, but I did definitely want to go over. This is our first time really seeing Dean, to air quote here, back to normal. Uh, After a few rough days or weeks or months basically ever since he's been brought back it's just been hectic you know between angels demons sam being some sort of hybrid you know kill the demons but be a demon thing it's you know it's not easy here it is finally free to eat large pretzels drink giant beers and potentially get laid and as we learn later he does you know the first two have always sort of been his method for masking his pain from himself, and the latter has always been his mask for himself from the world around him. There is one last thing Dean says that I feel merits a look, and that is in his confession to Jamie, which we mentioned at the top of the show. He refers to saving people both as a gift, and then immediately follows up with a mission. And to me, those are two wildly different takes on what he does, Especially mission to me just sort of leans military with the whole soldier. I don't have an answer here and I I hate not having that answer. I think it's a question and whether it becomes something we sort of let it sit and let our listeners decide on or we want to discuss more. Which of those is the mask? Is it a mission that he pretends is a gift or the other way around? Which way does Dean see it? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. And I, I don't know that we get the answer until season 15. And even then, I think it's very debatable. Oh, wow. The fact that, that even is something that you can bring up is means a lot. It means I definitely found something to dig into. 
I truly do not know how to take this. Like, I think it's a realization I had and I am still debating it in my mind constantly. So I'm thinking about one particular episode in season 14 where he sort of talks about that. I just think that this is something that's going to be a thread to follow throughout the series. I'm very interested in that and I'm happy I could bring that up. Okay, so now that we've used the crossroads to identify and discuss a theme, is there anywhere in the episode that the theme shows up and that we haven't quite discussed it? Well, I think we said at the top of the show, but the fact that the episode's literally in black and white. <laughs> the filter! It's literally, a you know, literally a mask. It feels out of canon almost. Like AU type of thing? Almost. Like, it almost feels like... I feel like I've used the word filler so many times, but I think it almost feels more like this episode is doesn't count a you or it's it's like a one off fun story. It's not part of the major canon of the, the show. It clearly is, but it gives the impression that it's not necessarily like the best example I can give of this would be to compare uh, the musical episode of Buffy once more with feeling you would assume a silly comedy musical episode of a show would not really be a major plot point. But in that particular season of Buffy, without spoiling for anybody, it's a huge reveal by the end of it. So this episode that I feel like it almost sets you up for the like, oh, I can just munch on my popcorn and not have to worry about the greater context of this episode and world. And then, oh, look at all this stuff we discovered. Exactly. It's kind of like this hidden treasure chest kind of thing and you know it presents itself as like a black and white episode oh it'll be easy we can just kill some vamps but in the end it has a lot more nuance than that and it is much more complex than that and i think that in itself that's supernatural it presents itself as a monster of the week show but really it's much more than that oh layers i love it layers of the onion i tell you (laughs) Now, there's one character that we haven't talked about almost at all, and that's the shapeshifter. Go on. Basically, the villain in this episode is a shapeshifter pretending to be a vampire and like pretending to be other stuff, too. Most notably, those two things. Both of these creatures have been heavily linked to Dean's queer coding throughout the series so far. And I just like quick parenthesis, I want to break from story time here just to say how amazing I think Todd Stashwick is in this role. Like he just moves flawlessly from like caricature to heartfelt in seconds. And I just I think that he's one of the reasons why this episode really holds up. Oh, yeah. No, he was unbelievable the whole way through. Just any moment where he like dropped the accent for a second, like you feel that. But even in the way that he acted like the old, the old timey monster, like he did such a flawless job at that. Like, and it's for me, it's the way he moves from one to the next, like just on the turn of a dime. I am just amazed with this man. Uh, And and I think that if not everyone would have been able to play it this way. And I, I, I just I'm very thankful that they got him to play this. No, phenomenal. So we have a shapeshifter who's desperately trying to get a woman's attention by wearing different masks. Does that remind you of anyone yet? Uh-huh. And just like Dean with his hymen, the shapeshifter also shows like his own gender queerness by transforming into Lucy and becoming friends with Jamie. 
We also hear the shapeshifter's experience of growing up a shapeshifter and having his dad call him a monster, which again, not to beat a dead horse here, but I can totally imagine that John did or would have done to Dean with regards to his own queerness. But I think that what really sealed the parallels for me was when the shapeshifter like drops his own mask, so to speak, and talks to Jamie the same way that Dean talked to her earlier, which is why both of these men should have done from the get-go if they had, if they really wanted to get close to her. There was like no need for this masquerade. They could have just befriended her from the get-go. Like, it's sad how beautiful this is. It's beautiful how sad it is. It's just, it's... Beautiful, sad, tragic, as uh, Dr. Swift has said. It really is beautiful. Well, speaking of that, do you want to head into critical time to talk about who wrote this? Oh, I do. Who was behind this masterpiece? It was directed by Robert Singer. It was written by Ben Edlund. Love of my life. Ben! To kind of give you an idea, he wrote in season two, Simon Said, Night Shifter, Hollywood Babylon, and in season three, Bad Day at Black Rock, Malleus Maleficarum, and Ghost Facers. Mm, What a track record. Always a lot of like hidden queerness in there, which I really appreciate. Oh, Ben, we appreciate you a lot. I know, we appreciate you so much, and there's so much more from him to come. Would you like to regale us with some lore this week? Oh, I would. Welcome back, listeners. At this time, it is our duty to keep you informed while you are sheltered. Our previous reports still hold true. There is something in town attacking civilians. Reports are coming in faster than the police can respond, and they are beginning to vary. At this point... It would seem we may have multiple threats in our borders. As we said earlier, remain indoors. Do not open the door for anybody. If you've taken your eyes off of them for more than a few moments, then they are not to be trusted. I sit here, in my studio, as my own partner knocks on the door, asking me to let him in. However, I refuse to unlock the station door, seeing as my partner was killed yesterday by one of these mysterious assailants, before my very eyes. I can still hear him screaming for help with his last dying breath, yet somehow, here he is, alive and well, pounding on my door asking me to let him in. I've had callers tonight claim to have seen their deceased pets in their yard, received phone calls from loved ones who were standing in the same room as them, and even stranger still are sightings of creatures that seem impossible. Wolfmen, horses walking on water, people turning into snakes, foxes turning into ghosts, The list goes on, and with each new report coming to the police and from them to our station, it only becomes weirder. The pounding on my door and the pleas for what is surely one of these shapeshifters appears to have stopped, but I can hear noises in the vents above me. I fear this may be my final broadcast. Good night. Shapeshifters are an incredibly broad and vague creature to try and describe. Virtually every culture under the sun, every history, every nation, every everyone has a story of a shape-shifting creature or person or deity. To list them all here would be virtually impossible. Whether the literal shapeshifters, as described much like in Supernatural, or variations such as animals turning to humans, humans turning to animals, spirits to animals, animals to monsters, gods to animals, it goes on forever. The combinations are literally endless. 
Suffice to say, the shapeshifter may just be the most commonly described entity in any mythology or religion. Yet, despite the fact that almost every story is wholly different from the culture to culture, and rarely do we find repetition among shapeshifters, for a creature whose whole thing is copying, they're surprisingly unique. That's actually really interesting. I usually like to pull like a few examples of a creature from different cultures. The literal lists and also I guess just the fact that shapeshifter is such a vague term. When you're looking up stories of shapeshifters from different mythologies and races, you get everything from Loki turning into a horse that one time to seduce another horse and getting pregnant, to werewolfism, to Dracula's a shapeshifter, he turns into a bat or wolves or mist. It's really hard to pinpoint a definition of them, which I think is what makes them such a malleable form to use for storytelling. This is actually perfect for a TV show like Supernatural that doesn't really like to go by the rules, so they don't have to in this particular case, which is kind of nice for them. Precisely. And amazingly, they have once again made a fairly unique version of a shapeshifter because though there are many like it, no one has an exact version like this. Good for Supernatural. They were accidentally original. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just going to say it right now. Thank you to Shapeshifters, because this is the first time a werewolf was done right by me. This segues so freaking nicely into our next segment. So I felt really inspired by our friends over at Gateleapers uh, with their game show style format. And I figured that we could play a fun game and the game would be called Find That Trope. I am so excited, but also incredibly nervous. (laughs) There's no need. I will walk you through it. So because this episode is filled with different tropes, it honestly kind of feels like they tried to cram in as many as they possibly could, right? The way that we're going to do this is that I am going to name you a trope and you're going to tell me when the trope is used in the episode. Now, you're allowed to have me define the trope so that you can hopefully have an easier time placing it on the episode. So the very first one is very apropos. The first trope is called Our Werewolves Are Different. I think I need a bit more context. It's a subtrope of Our Werebeasts Are Different, which basically means like in this particular story, we have defined this beast as such. And this beast that we are seeing now is different from the way that we have defined the lore before. The thing that stands out the most, and it might be a little on the nose, is and actually you know what it happens twice and that is both times the brothers are meeting with the eyewitness of the murder and they just bluntly describe it as a dracula and a werewolf it, like this is the only way to describe this thing because it is so blatantly what it is absolutely so particularly for werewolves you know the whole confusion comes from the fact that like in supernatural Werewolves don't look the way that they've been described. The way that they should. (laughs) I'm sorry, but the way that they are in Supernatural, right? (laughs) Yes, agreed. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) So that's that's the idea of the game. Okay, I'm getting it. All right, so I have a second one for you. The second trope is, I need a freaking drink. I can feel that one deep in my bones. 
if I'm not mistaken, this is kind of that like the moment when a character is just like flabbergasted or floored and kind of needs to step away from it and kind of take a moment for themselves. All of these are very on the nose. So like, don't think about it too much. It's This is basically when a character says or implies, I need a freaking drink. I'm pretty sure that is the reaction Dean gives after seeing the very movie style vampire bite marks on the neck of the victim. And they literally go to a bar. Exactly. And even then, like the witness is drinking from like this huge bucket style beer. And then the second witness also, uh, she's drinking from a straw, but like from a supersized soda cup. Oh, yes. Yeah. I thought that was so funny. I don't know why it seems so weird to me. I didn't even put the two together. That's great. Next trope is red herring. So the red herring here would be Ed, because there is just so much incredibly blunt evidence that Ed is the shapeshifter. I mean, he literally lives in an old timey movie theater with posters of every monster movie on the walls. Like it's like textbook him. And of course, it's not. It's all just a red herring. It's fake clues. Exactly. Full points for Drew. <laughs> mm, points. Yum, 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 yum. Next trope. Running gag. I feel like him dropping the accent when he was playing Dracula was kind of like a running joke. There was also, oh, there was also the um, the prop house, the fact that I kept finding like uh, the items around the crime scene that were clearly uh, tied to the same prop house from his necklace to the sarcophagus. But was it funny, though? It was repetition, but was it funny? I kind of got a giggle out of it. But what are we looking for? I feel like you're you're aiming for something more specific here. Yes, there's something a bit more specific here. Think about something that happens a couple of times over the series that we've watched so far. And it's something that we've talked about and that, like, I am very fond of. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I can't figure out what you're fishing for here. Oh, don't don't be embarrassed. It's incredibly niche. That's the whole point. <laughs> oh, what is it? So it's basically Sam like mistaking an innocent person for a monster <laughs> yeah. and then awkwardly apologizing and like his little bean face. Oh my God. He's so cute. I love him so much. Oh my God. Yes. Oh, uh, and I even said it too. Like when he has that interaction with Ed being like, Oh, Sam. Oh, Sam. Like he's trying to like rip off his ear. Like <laughs> this should come off. No, it shouldn't. <laughs> I love Sam. Oh my God. Okay. Next trope, all in the eyes. All in the eyes. So you can ask me to define yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say I might need a bigger, better definition of this one. All right. So for this trope, the lights dim and the character is thrown into deep shadow or sometimes even total darkness, except for a mysterious rectangle highlighting the character's eyes. Oh, I can totally picture it, too. But I just, it's, oh, when does it happen though? I can picture it. Think about it, dear. It's when the shapeshifter is posing as Dracula. We have a moment of him watching uh, Jamie. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. It's the first time we see Dracula. His eyes are framed in a beam of light. <laughs> oh my God, I can picture the scene now. Thank you, yes. And now I have a last one for you, which I think is really interesting and we'll have to be used, we'll have to reuse it in, or at least keep an eye on it because I think it works really well. Last trope, genre blindness. Genre blindness. I feel like I know what it is, but I'm going to ask for a little more details just to be safe. 
All right, so it's basically when fictional characters demonstrate through their behavior that they've never in their life ever seen the kind of story that they're in and have none of the reactions a typical audience member would have in the same situation. Oh, so the horny teen in the car who gets murdered by the accurate werewolf? They are literally in a car alone. There's like the like movie quality fog around the car, which I think for us is just an even bigger tell and refuses to believe uh, his female compatriot when she complains there's a noise outside. He then describes what I, I'm pretty sure is a, a really poor description of being blue balled before being literally mauled. So I feel like in a way, almost every character in this particular story uh, is affected by genre blindness in some way. The one that I was really going for was when Dean points to the monster, like basically tells the shapeshifter what happens at the end of every monster movie. And Dracula replies that this is his movie and this time the monster wins and gets the girl. Yeah, which I think is what every monster probably would say in their own movie until it doesn't happen. Exactly. And that is a, a that is a typical example of genre blindness. That's, that's an even better example than mine. I love it. <laughs> this was fun. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Well, with all of that, shall we head over and see what our community has to share with us? Let's do that. This week, we have a voicemail from Kara. Hi, my name is Kara. I've already sent a voicemail that appeared in Season 3, Episode 3, and was about Dean's lack of self-preservation. Today, I wanted to talk about John, because I hate him. But more specifically, I want to talk about how John used Dean as a resource, rather than treating him like a person. So, let's take a look of uh, John's voicemail in Season 1. Uh, John's voicemail tells people Dean's number and tells them to go to Dean if something's wrong. John has responsibility towards these people. That's why he doesn't tell them to fuck off. He does. He wants someone to help them. I don't know if he cares about them or just feels responsible. But these people are his responsibility. And he passes on that responsibility to Dean because he can't take on himself that responsibility right now due to the chase uh, after the demon that killed his wife. Gee, I wonder what that... Yeah, I, I can't think about anything similar that John did during Dean's childhood. Not like Sam was his responsibility or something. Because Sam was John's responsibility. Uh, Sam was his kid. And he couldn't take on himself that responsibility towards his kid and raising him. So he passed on that responsibility to Dean. And was like... And that's something I see happening again and again and again and again in the show. Dean is dealing with John's crap, with John's responsibility, with all the things John fucked up. And John, I don't 
think he really we really see him talking a lot about keeping Sam safe, but we know he didn't like take him hunting at such a young age. But that was because he already had someone do that. He already had someone he can take with him on hunts um if he needed to. He had Dean. And he didn't need Sam to be uh, he didn't Sam didn't need to grow up so fast because Dean already filled the jobs uh John needed to be needed uh someone to do. I'm sorry if it was messy. Uh, I was trying to just get my point across. Um thank you for having such a lovely podcast and yeah. That was uh great. Have a nice day. I love how how much I enjoy this voicemail, how much I enjoy the way you described this. I connect so much with how much you hate John and I love it. And I'm sitting here laughing at how like amazingly well said this was and how much I agree. And then remember how incredibly dark of a subject this is. I never really thought of it that way, but he never treated the Sam, the Sam. He never treated Sam the way he treated Dean because he had already put Dean in the position that he needed someone to be in. It it stings when it's so right. (laughs) There are a lot of people and fans of the show who are like, but you know, John abused Sam too. And I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that, you know, I think that sometimes when we, and, and this is something that I'm guilty of, right? Like this is not a comment on other fans. Like this is specifically me reflecting about me. I find that sometimes when I put too much emphasis on the abuse that Dean has lived through, then I tend to kind of like forget that Sam has also lived through abuse in his childhood. As explained by Kara so concisely in this voicemail, Dean really acted as a buffer between the two. And I think that that's how he saw himself. Like that was part of like his identity and part of what he did, you know, like his mission from God, so to speak, in a way, right? If we're using language that we heard in this episode. And I mean, we've seen him clean up John's messes before in this series. We will see him clean up John's messes again in this series. So what's more to say? (laughs) There's not much more. I mean, you're right. It's, you know what, we, we forget how much Sam has suffered as well. And it's not to make a comparison. It's not to say one is worse than the other. But it's to see how Sam has almost put it behind him, realizing how bad it is. Yes, he internalizes it. Yes, it has effects on him. But he 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 still sees John as an enemy, despite being his father. Whereas Dean still sees himself as John's perfect little soldier. Yeah, he does. And I think that the reason why is because there was no buffer between him and John, whereas there was a buffer between John and Sam. For all the negative implications that John bestowed upon Dean... Dean, even if it's subconscious, he understands how bad those things are. And like you said, he acted as a buffer, preventing Sam from going down the same road he went down. I think we've talked about this before in this season, but we're starting to see also things that, you know, hearing John through Dean is something that we're hearing a lot more of lately. And so I think that this is something to really track. Thank you so much, Kara, for basically opening up that conversation for us so that we can stay on track, especially this season. We will be talking about John quite a bit. Oh, you know, I love talking about John. But for now, shall we 
take some time to look at the reflections and calls to action this week has brought us. Mine is uh, a bit on the nose, but the episode reminds me that we all have a tendency to put on a mask with people around us. You know, we tried our we, we we try we hide our true selves and it's not always intentional. Sometimes we just omit certain parts or we play certain things up a little bit to help us better fit into social situations. It's kind of natural. But all of that to say, I think it is important to also find people who you don't have to put on a mask around. And, and again, like I feel like the hiding your true self thing goes on many levels and in a show like this where we talk about Dean's queerness, people can connect to that. We've heard people's voicemails connecting to that. And there are places where the mask is literally a coping mechanism to keep yourself safe. But I feel like the more you have to hide, the more important it is to seek out people who you don't have to hide from. I absolutely agree. I think that you said something that was really important is that sometimes hiding your true self is an act of self-preservation. And I really want to honor that because this whole like be yourself all the time really comes from a place of privilege. And we can't be asking that of everybody all the time because some people do not live in safe situations. But I, I agree with you. I think it's so important to have some people with who you can be your true self. So thank you very much for that reflection, Drew. Thank you. And what do you have to share with us this week? Well, I find that we talked a lot about Dean in this episode, which is fine. So I sort of chose to reflect a little bit more about Sam's storyline. If we remember, it was to pretend like everything was okay and to not talk about the thing that was really on his mind. Or at least that's how I perceived him to be acting. And so this is kind of making me feel called to notice when there are people around me who are like actively avoiding a topic and to you know, kind of let them know if, if of course I'm feeling up for it, that I can try to hold space for them if there's something that they want to talk about. That's amazing. That's very, uh, you know, and well worded too. It is so valiant to recognize when people need someone to speak to and having the fortitude to be able to not just let them know you're there for them, but to make sure you know that you yourself need to be able to be there for them. You know, I, I've been in that scenario where someone just needs to, you know, let it all out and spell their guts. And you are totally not in the right space or the right person to be doing that to in that moment. And whether they just don't give you the room to say not now or you don't have the strength to say it in that moment. And that's a, a, a you thing. It is important to know that you shouldn't have to take on someone else's burden. But if you feel you can it's a good thing to try to help them, but don't do it in a way that hurts you. For me anyway, that's the lesson of 2022 so far. It's to kind of, to make sure that I have enough energy to take care of myself because I cannot help others if I'm not helping myself. And I know that that sounds incredibly cliche, but that's, that's been true. My health has not been the best this year so far. You know, I went from the concussion to not COVID and it's been something and now my eight-year-old has COVID symptoms again and no negative tests, uh, no positive tests. Sorry. It's again, not COVID. So yeah, it's uh, kind of forcing me to, to recognize my own, my own limits. And therefore, and by, re it's funny because I, by recognizing that it allows me to be even more present for others, which is kind of weird, but it works. If it works, it works. 
You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Kara for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward, and leave us a rating or a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. Like, has a... Sam's reaction... (laughs) I'm sorry. I have no more words.